Welcome to week one of our Heroes of the Reformation course here at Palm Vista Community Church. It is two days before we celebrate Reformation Day, which is October 31st of each year. And this year we celebrate the 500th anniversary of that great day. And so to celebrate that day, we want to introduce this class and I want to introduce uh, Cal uh, as he's going to be teaching us for the next six weeks on the heroes of the Reformation. Uh, Cal Beisner has his PhD. Cal Beisner is a seminary professor. Cal Beisner is a man who's very learned. Cal Beisner is also a friend. He's a humble man who loves Jesus with all his heart. And he's just going to bring the gifts God has given him to teach us. So I just want to pray for Cal. And then I pray these next six weeks would really... Uh, be eye-opening to many who may not know the details about the heroes of the Reformation because they all are heroes because of the hero, Jesus Christ. And uh, we want to stand on their shoulders, church, and understand what's at stake and why this is such a great day that we're celebrating. So let's pray. Lord, I pray for Cal. Lord, I pray that you would give him much grace. I pray that you would anoint him as he teaches. Uh, Lord, just even the words he uses the way he shares it over these next six weeks, Father, it would build amongst us, and I think particularly amongst the young people. I thank you for the young people that are here today, that it would build a heart and a desire to understand the issues at stake. For Lord, today that reformation continues. Lord Jesus, it's all about you and your name and your glory. Father, we thank you for this time. And we, we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. So can we welcome Cal? Cal? Okay, thank you, Al. Um, I start with a couple of handicaps. Uh, the first one is that uh, when I've taught Reformation Church history at seminary, it's typically been a full semester of 18 sessions of three hours each. I have six sessions of 45 minutes each here. Second, uh, although my PhD is in history, it isn't in Reformation history, it's not in, properly speaking, theological history, and what I taught at seminary regarding church history was more, uh, more the history of doctrine than the history of particular events. Now, I'm into events, and I'm into people, and I'm going to give you a lot about people in this, but I have always focused more on the ideas in history than on the specific individuals. Uh, much, I think, to my own uh, impoverishment, the more I read biographies, the more I wish I had read more biographies. Uh, and so I, I do hope to, uh, to do a little repenting of that as I teach this course. Uh, but all of that goes by way of an introduction to what I'm going to be doing today. We're not going to focus on any specific individual today in Reformation history. The Reformation was all about ideas. It really was not about people, about individuals. It was about ideas, doctrines. And we call it a Reformation, not a revolution, because properly speaking, it was an effort on the part of certain thinkers to restore to the church the teachings that had been its in the scriptures and in the earliest centuries of the Christian faith. I'm going to drop one bombshell on all of you right now. 
Protestantism is older than Roman Catholicism. How many of you were aware of that? Protestantism is older than Roman Catholicism. Now, everybody thinks that Protestantism started with the Reformation in, say, 1517. Actually, we can say the Reformation basically stretches from about 1450 to about 1650, so a two-century period. But we look back to one particular event in 1517 and say, yeah, that, that was the beginning of the Reformation. Well, and after all, the Roman Catholic Church was around for a long, long time, for 1,500 years before that, right? No. Wrong. The Roman Catholic Church, if you define it by the dogmas that distinguish it from Protestantism, is actually younger than Protestantism. Protestantism's first major confession was the Augsburg Confession, which was completed, I believe the year was 1530. The Roman Catholic Church didn't respond to that in terms of adopting a set of dogmas and saying, these are ours compared with those that are theirs, okay? until the beginning of the Council of Trent, which ran, or throughout the Council of Trent, which ran from 1545 to 1564. So actually, Roman Catholicism, if you start with the beginning of the Council of Trent and you start with the Augsburg Confession, is at least 15 years younger than Protestantism. And one of the biggest attractions for many modern evangelicals to Roman Catholicism is, I want a church with a sense of history, roots in history. That's what I don't find in my Protestant experience. Well, you know, I think there's a lot of, a lot of reason for taking that seriously. Because as a matter of fact, most evangelicals have so little awareness of church history that it's, it's kind of as if the church began maybe at the start of Billy Graham's Crusades in the 1950s. <laughs> Well, maybe we can push it back to the Second Great Awakening in the 18-teens and 20s and 30s. Or maybe to the First Great Awakening in the 1730s and 40s. All right, all the way back to the 1500s and the Reformation. No. The doctrines that distinguish Protestant thought from Roman Catholic thought are the doctrines that are taught in Scripture, and they're the doctrines that were taught in the earliest centuries of the Christian church. The doctrines that distinguish Roman Catholicism from Protestantism are doctrines that most of them didn't begin to be taught in the churches until, oh, say, the 7th, 8th, 9th centuries. Some of them not at all until as late as the 11th and 12th and 13th centuries. Doctrines like the supremacy of the pope you don't get that before the 7th century. You don't get the infallibility of the Pope until the First Vatican Council in the, in the uh, 19th century. Uh, the Assumption of Mary can't be traced back before about the 5th or 6th century at the very earliest, and then it's only in marginal texts. Purgatory probably cannot be t traced back before about the 8th century, and uh, probably can't be traced before about the, uh, the 11th century, certainly not before the 8th century. Um, again and again, we get doctrines that the Roman Catholic Church will say, this has been the teaching of the church through all the ages, and in fact it hasn't been. Probably the most important doctrine for Protestantism, the one on which uh, Martin Luther said the church stands or falls, is the doctrine of justification. 
Protestantism says that, that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Roman Catholicism says that justification is by grace plus merits, through faith plus works, and the faith being in Christ plus the church and her sacraments and her saints and the saints' works and the works of the individual believer. All of those things combined. Furthermore, Protestantism defines justification as the forgiveness of sins and the declaration that we are righteous in God's sight. It is a forensic, it is a judicial act. You've heard of forensic uh, medicine that tries to figure out what happened to somebody, what killed somebody in order to help yield a judicial verdict in a trial. Forensic has to do with a judicial declaration at its end. Protestantism says justification is forensic. God declares a sinner righteous. And Martin Luther struggled with the question, how can the righteous God, the just God, declare the sinner righteous? And that's exactly what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 3. And Roman Catholicism says instead that justification is not only declarative, forensic, but also constitutive. By justification, God actually makes a sinner righteous. And in fact, the very word justification stems in its etymology from two uh, Latin words, ius and justus, ius being law, justus being lawful or just, and facere, to make. So justification in its etymological sense means to make just. But that's not what the Hebrew and Greek words for, uh, that, that are translated, justificare, in the Latin translation of the Bible, the Vulgate, done by Jerome in the 5th century. Justificare was not a good translation for that, for those terms. Because in every instance in the Bible where we get the Hebrew and Greek words that eventually get translated by Jerome as justificare, the, the sense is a declaration so, for instance, in the parable that Jesus tells of the, uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the tax collector goes and he beats his breasts and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisee goes and he prays and he thanks God that he's not like this sinner, the tax collector, that he does all these wonderful good things. And Jesus says the tax collector went away justified, not the Pharisee. It's clearly a declaration. Now, how did, this, how did this get changed? Well, partly by Jerome's mistranslation of the Greek and the Hebrew terms to justificare, but then it actually took centuries after that before that worked its way through into the whole teaching of the church so that all of, the, you know, or much of the Roman Catholic Church was teaching this. Now, I'm going to add this much more by way of this bit of an introduction. Uh, the, the, the defining doctrines of Roman Catholicism and the defining doctrines of Protestantism existed within the Catholic Church for centuries. Some of the defining ones of, of Roman Catholicism for fewer centuries, like purgatory, like the Assumption of Mary, like the supremacy of the Pope. But the, they, def- they existed within the Church together for centuries. And there were debates going on in the church. And there were scholars who defended one and scholars who defended another. 
And so we cannot say that this doctrine defined the whole Catholic Church before then. You're, you're going to hear a pattern of speech in me through these six weeks that I want you to be very conscious of. I will consistently say Roman Catholicism, Roman Catholic, when I mean that church whose dogmas are defined by the Council of Trent and later councils, the First and Second Vatican Councils and others. I will speak of Catholic, without Roman before it, right, to refer to simply all believers in Christ Jesus. That's Catholic, right? And the very fact that the Roman Catholic Church sometimes calls it the Roman Catholic Church means it's not Catholic. It's oxymoronic to say Roman Catholic, right? Because Roman identifies it with a particular branch, whereas Catholic says universal <coughs> of the whole. All right, now, so real, real quick uh, here, I want to just give you, and I, I wish that I had a bigger screen. I misremembered the size of the portable screen that I have. I've, you know, I'd like to have one like this instead. You know, maybe we can work something out for future weeks. But here's a, a quick little graph for you of the professing Christians as a percent of world population from AD 1 to 2000. Can you see it at all on that tiny screen? Okay, you see a, a really significant growth there. It's a, it's a pretty neat thing. But from about uh, 500 AD to about uh, 1400 AD, 1500 AD, there wasn't an awful lot of growth. So we had rapid growth in the first few centuries. We had some stagnation up and down, but some stagnation then for roughly the next thousand years. And then we had some more rapid growth again after the Reformation. Um, this stops at 2000. Um, I prepared these years ago when teaching at Knox, and I just didn't have the time to update things. Over the, uh, the last roughly 30 years, we have seen probably the most rapid growth in Christianity around the world of any time in history. Uh, now, this ends us with Christianity comprising something in the neighborhood of about 33 to 34% of the world's population. Um, but uh, uh, as a matter of fact, at this point, I think, granted that rapid growth of the, over the last 20 to 30 years, we probably constitute something more in the neighborhood of 37 or 38%. Again, I could try to go and, and get some data on it, but simply didn't have time before doing this. Uh, you see here a, a graph, a couple of different graphs of world religious adherence as percent of population in 1995, and then again in 2001. Uh, as of 95, Christians made up about 36.8% uh, of the world's population. As of 2001, about 33.4%, uh, so a very slight decline there. Is that because the church was growing less rapidly during that, those you know, uh, six years in there? No, I don't think so. The church was still growing very rapidly. But there was an interesting demographic thing going on, and that is that population growth had slowed in the historically Christian countries to the point where it was actually basically stopped, right? while it was still continuing rapidly in other countries, especially Muslim countries. 
And so you had a, a significant growth of Islam from 19.2% in 1995 to about 20% in, 19, in, in 2001. But fertility is declining in Muslim countries now the way it was in historically Christian countries 50 and 60 years ago. And I think we're gonna see those, those trajectories reverse over future years. Um, now, this is, uh, this is a quick illustration of the relationship of the various different parts of major Christianity uh, since the great schism between the Roman Catholics, right, okay, and the Eastern churches, okay, in 1054. That happened over an idea. The Western church, with its center at Rome, had introduced into the Nicene Creed one word, filioque, which means and, of the, and through the Son, or simply and the Son. The Nicene Creed had said that the Holy Spirit was, was, uh, was uh, sent from the Father, from the Father, and starting about a century and a half later, some churches in the West began adding, adding, and the Son, in order to avoid the implication that, well, if the Holy Spirit was only sent from the Father and not from the Son, then the Son is somehow not really fully equally God as is the Father. And then in the uh, early 11th century, in one of the councils of the Western church, that was made a, an official part of the creed the Eastern churches said, you didn't include us in those council, that council, so we're rejecting that. That's not part of our creed. And so then they denied papal authority, and you had a split between the East and the West. That was a so-called Great Schism in 1054. Now, what you see here beyond the, uh, the, beyond the 1054 point is very, 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 very roughly chronological, but not really fully so. What this is really designed to show is not time, but rather relationships among various branches of Protestantism. And we're looking primarily here in the West, okay? And so we see uh, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, John Knox, all of those men are originators of what we, what we tend to call now the Reformed faith, right? You also see above them Martin Luther, and of course from him come the Lutherans, and as an offshoot of them, the Moravians, following Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, right? Um, and then below Knox, you see Cranmer, Thomas Cranmer, uh, uh, who, who was uh, a contemporary of Henry VIII, and he was the one who really reformed, he, Cranmer, not Henry, who really reformed the Church of England and made it Protestant. Uh, adopting basically reformed theology for the Anglican Church. And then from those you get the Puritans, the Separatists, and among the Separatists are the Baptists. I'm trying to begin to focus a little bit on who we are here at Paul Vista. Um, let's see. Uh, let's see. Oh, I'm going to skip the... Oh, okay. This, this shows the makeup of world Christianity as of 1995. Roman Catholics, uh, roughly 50%. Uh, Protestants, roughly 20.5%. Orthodox, 11. Anglican, almost 4. And other, roughly 14%. Okay. 
okay? And there are all sorts of different things in the other category there. Um, and I'm gonna skip this one because it gets a little too detailed, but this one finally tells us where Palm Vista is, okay? Right? Um, and the little lines you see pointing to Palm Vista there, and they're little lines, they're little lines. Yeah, far right, you know, as in conservative, no, no, not as in conservative. Uh, no, little lines there drag down from uh, the, oh, actually I put one of those lines in the wrong place. The, the top of these, these little lines, okay, it's good that you can't see these lines. There should be a line going from Pentecostal down to, down to Palm Vista here, okay? And there should be a line going from Baptist to Palm Vista. And there should be a line going from, uh, from, uh, Presbyterian up to Palm Vista, because those basically are the, the, the feeders of the kind of thinking that we do here at Palm Vista. Um, but that's all right. Now, uh, keep in mind, by the way, we call ourselves at Palm Vista Reformed Baptists with some Pentecostal charismatic background to us, right? That makes us part of, part of a group that might be, you know, a tenth of a percent of professing Christians all around the world. <laughs> we are not dominant. And one of the things that I have had to learn through my Christian life is the church is a whole lot bigger than any congregation I'm in, any denomination I'm in, any set of denominations, any theological traditions. God is saving people all over the place, and that's a really neat thing, all right? Now, real quickly, I want to address the state of the Western church on the eve of the Reformation. There was widespread power corruption, especially in Rome, that came from mixing politics, business, especially banking, and religion. The mixing of banking and religion especially poured into the whole uh, indulgence controversy because the church was using indulgences to raise money to pay the enormous debts of the papacy incurred in part by the decision to build St. Peter's Basilica right, in Rome. So, that brought about all sorts of corruptions in power. Popes were the most powerful political figures most of the time from about the 10th or 11th century until the time of the Reformation. And they made emperors. And emperors, you know, one emperor actually came, came kneeling and, and crawling on his knees before a pope in the snow in order to get... Uh, an excommunication re, re, uh, rescinded against him. I mean, popes were very, very powerful figures. Politics always corrupts the church. It's unavoidable, by the way. Politics is simply how people relate to each other. Since we're sinners and we're, we're in the church, that means we will always have some corrupting politics in our churches. But at the point of the Reformation, the the Western Church was extremely corrupted by this kind of political and, and business and financial uh, integration with religion. There was also gross immorality of the clergy. Popes, bishops, priests, monks routinely had multiple mistresses and multiple illegitimate children. Some of the popes were the illegitimate children of earlier popes. Right? Um, convents and monasteries were often close together and there were tunnels connecting them. And illegitimate children of nuns fathered by monks were very common at this time. 
Now, by the way, this is not to say that's a unique thing. Sexual misconduct has been common in the churches all along. Paul had to rebuke the Corinthians for it. Right? So this is not a brand new thing. But it was a very widespread thing at the time of the beginning of the Reformation, and particularly among the clergy, and that earned a terrible reputation for the church, and many people, many people were trying to reform that. Uh, the great humanist scholar um, uh, Erasmus of Rotterdam, uh, who produced the first really uh, profoundly fine scholarly critical text of the New Testament, meaning he had very carefully compared all the different copies of the New Testament that were available and had come up with the best thing he could do in terms of saying, this is what the original Greek of the New Testament probably actually said, right? Erasmus of, of Rotterdam was a brilliant, brilliant man. He was a, an extremely pious man. I think he was a solid Christian man. And he wanted desperately to reform the, the Catholic Church and especially the church at Rome of its moral corruption. Where he couldn't quite go with Martin Luther was in reforming its soteriology, its doctrine of salvation. Right? So you know, we shouldn't think that the reformers alone wanted to, or the, the Protestant reformers alone wanted to reform the Roman Catholic Church in terms of its morals. Plenty of people inside the church wanted to do that. And as a matter of fact, starting with the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church launched what became called the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Reformation. Which is why we speak of the Protestant Reformation and the Roman Catholic Reformation. The Roman Catholic Reformation focused on reforming morals. The Protestant Reformation on reforming doctrine. There was also widespread gross ignorance of the clergy. Most priests and monks were illiterate. They only recited memorized Latin in the mass. They couldn't, they couldn't read it. They had never read or perhaps even seen a Bible. They held their posts as privileges passed down to them usually for political reasons, in order to enhance the power of those who put them into those positions. They rarely preached. Now, there were exceptions, but that's the general mass of the clergy. Pardon the mass there, but anyway, that's the general description of the clergy at that time. Preaching was rare. Bible study was rare. Uh, it was just really almost unheard of to do that. Now, that, you know, there were brilliant people. In the, in the Catholic, small c, church prior to the Reformation, there were brilliant people at the time of the Reformation who didn't go with Martin Luther and John Calvin and the other Protestant reformers. Uh, so, you know, it's not without exception, but that's the general, general state. There was also gross ignorance of the laity. Liter illiteracy was very, very common, very high. Superstition was very common, and that superstition was almost always linked with syncretism. Syncretism is the notion that you combine the features of this religion with the features of that religion and so on. And so particularly in terms of the doctrine of purgatory, which probably really uh, arose out of Greek and Roman mythology, certainly not out of anything Hebrew or uh, Greek Christian, right? Purgatory, 
the doctrines of prayers for the dead, the doctrines of prayers to the saints, all of these things seem to have been brought in syncretistically to Western Christianity and some also to Eastern Christianity before the Protestant Reformation. Um, and then finally, there was great doctrinal confusion over anthropology, the doctrine of man, where we have uh, three main competing systems, Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, and Augustinianism. And I'm not going to go into detail defining those for you, but basically Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism deny what in the Reformed faith we call total depravity in our Tulip, you know, the five points of Calvinism. Tulip, uh, the first point is total depravity. That doesn't mean that we are as evil as we could conceivably be, right? It means instead that, that sin affects every aspect of, uh, of us. It affects our minds and our bodies. It affects not only our, our, our uh, wills, but also our passions, our emotions, and our intellect. The very way that we reason is crippled by sin. So that's total depravity. And that's the notion that because we, we were in Adam himself, we participated in his sin, we all are born with every aspect of us already contaminated, crippled, uh, uh, totally condemned by sin. And Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism back off from that. And they say, no, there are some things about human, human nature that are, that are not so bad off. And, and we can start with those good things. And if we build on those, then we can get ourselves right with God one way or another. So there was confusion over anthropology, the doctrine of man, soteriology. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, and, and I'll give you some contrasting terms here. Um, synergism the idea that God and man work together to save man versus monergism, God alone saves us, right? The Bible, I believe, is monergistic. Roman Catholicism is synergistic. At the time leading up to the Reformation, there were monergists and synergists alike in the Catholic Church, and they were debating these points. There was also... uh, the, uh, the debate over the roles of grace and merit uh, in our salvation. Uh, the, the Bible, I believe, teaches that our justification is by grace alone. Roman Catholicism insists that it's by grace plus merit. And so it's partly earned right, as a reward. Um, prior to the Reformation, over the last eight to ten centuries prior to the Reformation, those two ideas both were common in the Western, the Catholic Church, as well as in the Eastern Church. And it was the Protestant reformers who brought clarity there, and Rome decided to stay on the synergistic side of that debate. Uh, There was also the issue of faith versus works. What is it by which we receive forgiveness of sins? Is it totally by faith, or is it by faith plus works? Protestantism says it's totally by faith. We'll sometimes say by faith alone. Might be a better way to say that would be uh, solely or only by faith, because as the reformers themselves pointed out, 
while we are justified by faith alone, the faith that justifies is never alone. Amen. It is always a working faith. Right? Um, so the, the, the opposite view there was that faith and works together were the means by which, the, the instruments by which we receive forgiveness of sins and justification. Um, and then finally, sacerdotalism versus evangelicalism. Sacerdotalism being the idea that a priesthood, a sacred clergy, has an indispensable role in conveying the grace of God to us, not only in declaring the word of God, but also in performing certain acts that themselves infuse grace into us so that we become transformed and fit for heaven. So in reality, the Roman Catholic uh, clergy considers itself to be a continuation of the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. Whereas uh, for Protestantism, the evangel, the gospel, is by itself, as Paul puts it in Romans 1.16, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Which means you don't have to receive the Eucharist. You don't have to be baptized. Now, you should. You should do both of those things. And I think it's sinful to, you know, to neglect those things if you've learned that you ought to do those things. But you don't have to do those. You don't have to do penance. You don't have to do confession. You don't have to have holy orders. You don't have to receive extreme unction as you're on your deathbed in order to wind up in heaven. Right? For Roman Catholicism, the priestly order performs these sacraments in order to ensure that you get to heaven. All right. And then finally, well, not finally, next, ecclesiology. There's what is called Caesaropapism. The Pope rules not only the church, but also the civil order. And he rules over all kings and emperors everywhere. They all owe him obedience, not only in terms of the Christian faith, but also in terms of the political order, how they rule their countries. Uh, there was ultramontanism, the, the notion, and this montanism, you, you hear mont in there, that's mountains, okay? Ultramontanism was the doctrine that, uh, that the, the, the popes from across the mountains could rule France, which was north of the Alps, right? The popes were south of the Alps, and so that was one way of looking at that. And then there was conciliarism, which said, no, the church should be ruled not by a single bishop from Rome, but by councils of the church, right? All of those had to do with the structure of authority within the church. And then finally, uh, there, there, were, there was doctrinal confusion about uh, the sacraments. How many of them are there? Are there seven, according to Roman Catholicism, or two, according to Protestantism? And what do they do? And how do they do it? These things were all uh, issues of debate in the church leading up to the Reformation. So that's where we come from. And now for the remaining about eight minutes that I have here, something like that, I'm going to introduce what's on your handout. Right? Um, I'm calling this, or I've titled this handout, are, there are some extra copies here. 
make sure that everybody gets one of those. I've titled this Great Redefinitions of the Great Reformation, but I want to caution how you understand that. I am not saying that the reformers redefined these terms. What I'm saying is that by the time of the Reformation, many thinkers within the Catholic Church had redefined these terms from how they were used in the Bible so that they meant something very different from what the Bible meant by them. And the reformers restored their original biblical definitions. Remember what I mentioned earlier, and and we'll get into this when we get to Martin Luther next week, Um, what I mentioned about the, the, the word justification or justify, right? Now we're kind of stuck linguistically after you know, 1,600 years uh, from Jerome to now, we're kind of stuck with the fact that we use that word justification to denote this doctrine. But in fact, that's not, that's not a, a, a very good way to do it because the Hebrew and Greek terms didn't mean to make righteous. They meant to declare righteous, to declare innocent, to pronounce the forgiveness of sins and pardon. So, um, during the period from about the, uh, it it varies from doctrine to doctrine, but uh, roughly the the 5th century through the 15th century, you had, with various different doctrines, little by little, the substitution of unbiblical definitions for biblical definitions, and, and those existed alongside the biblical definitions. Remember that. They always existed alongside the biblical definitions. But when the Protestant reformers said, no, this is the biblical definition. And they said, we're ready to stake our lives on this. And the Roman Catholic Church responded at the Council of Trent by saying, no, these definitions are the ones we're willing to stake our lives on. That was when you had the clear break and you no longer had the people within the Roman Catholic, remember that's oxymoronic, church teaching the biblical definitions. You had the people teaching the biblical definitions in the Protestant churches. So um, I'm just going to quickly run down through these. You can, you can study them more on your own since we're practically out of time. Uh, but first, uh, for Roman Catholicism, the authority is... The Bible, including the Apocrypha, and I don't think we're going to wind up getting into that during this course. Uh, tradition, referred to as the unanimous consent of the fathers. Okay? As a matter of fact, there is nothing on which the fathers are unanimous. They ain't no such fish in the sea. Okay? <laughs> but the Roman Catholic Church will insist that there is on various things. Uh, The ecumenical councils, ecumenical coming from the Greek word oikos for world, okay, or house. And so these are councils that supposedly have representatives of the church from all over the world. Well, as a matter of fact, probably only the first five uh, had, you know, could lay a, a tolerable claim to that. And since then, there have been no truly ecumenical councils, although the Roman Catholic Church, thinking it is the only church in the world, holds its councils and calls those ecumenical. 
At any rate, for the Roman Catholic Church, the authority is the combination of the Bible and tradition, the ecumenical councils, and at last, the popes. And at the very top of all that is the pope, because he gets to determine what the Bible really means. He gets to determine which of the decisions of the councils are binding and which ones are not. There is no accountability for the Pope in the Roman Catholic Church when he speaks ex cathedra. Now, he can be corrected on other things, ex cathedra meaning from the throne of Peter in Rome, as the Bishop of Rome, not simply as the, the supreme pontiff for the whole Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, but rather as the Bishop of Rome. When he speaks that way, there is no, no system of accountability, which is bringing about some really interesting events right now with Pope Francis, because Pope Francis is teaching a bunch of things that are clearly contrary to historic Roman Catholic teaching about morals. And there are more and more Roman Catholic theologians who are very upset, and they're thinking of trying to revive conciliarism. The problem is that it was the, uh, the first Vatican Council in the 19th century that determined that the Pope, speaking from the, the throne of Peter, is infallible. Well, they've got a big problem there. For Protestantism, authority is the Bible excluding the Apocrypha, which is the sole supreme. It's not the sole authority. It's the sole supreme authority and the sole infallible authority so that it is the highest court of appeal for doctrine. It is the, the highest standard. So when we say uh, that we believe in sola scriptura, we don't mean that the Bible is the only authority we recognize. We're saying all other authorities are subordinate to that. Church councils, great things. I think one of the great losses in much of the American evangelical uh, tradition, movement, whatever, is the fact that most evangelical churches either don't have a creed, a confession at all, or they have one that is so short, so basic, so elementary, that it just doesn't address all sorts of really important issues. I think we should be making a much bigger thing of church councils and of confessions or creeds than we tend to do in American evangelical churches. Um, so the Bible is the supreme and the sole supreme and infallible authority, but we also recognize tradition, we recognize councils, we recognize clergy, we recognize scholars. All of these, all of these things have some authority for us. Right? I mean, I trust that you're not going to go get your doctrine of the Trinity and your answer to the question of whether perichoresis is a true doctrine from your five-year-old child. That child has no authority on that issue. I'm not even going to tell you what perichoresis is. <laughs> All right. To focus a little more clearly on Scripture. Scripture is, for the Roman Catholic Church, the Word of God understood only by popes and tradition. And it's one authority among several. Whereas for Protestantism, Scripture is the Word of God understood by the individual believer, and it is the sole infallible authority. Roman Catholicism will say, yeah, but the Bible is so, so difficult to understand. Try reading all of the different decrees and canons of the councils of the Roman Catholic Church. Try reading all the encyclicals of the popes. Try reading the, the uh, 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 catechism of the Catholic Church and tell me there's nothing difficult to understand in that stuff. You know what's the real irony here? 
is that when they tell us that their tradition and their conciliar pronouncements and their papal pronouncements are what enable us to understand the Bible, and yet they also say that the Bible is the Word of God, they're telling us that they are better at making themselves understandable than God is. I have my doubts about that, and I hope you do too. All right, so how's our time? We're cut off. Okay, so we didn't even get into the next batch there, uh, but you can read down that list and see a basic comparison of all, of, on all these different points. And there are many others too, but I thought that these were pretty, pretty fundamental. These are the issues that were at stake in the Reformation. We're going to see over the next five weeks how particular major reformers uh, contributed to our understanding of these issues. So let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for uh, your gospel that is indeed the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Thank you, Father, for sending Christ to die on the cross in our place as our, our completely sufficient, uh, satisfactory, propitiatory, uh, uh, expiatory sacrifice to take all the guilt of our sins away from us, all the punishment, so that we might stand before you and hear you say, forgiven, innocent, righteous in my sight, and so that indeed we would be able to have confidence that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, we pray for uh, the, the, the over a billion people who are in the Roman Catholic Church we know that many of them do have a simple saving faith in, in Christ, but many also are confused, as are many in Protestant churches and Eastern churches. We ask, Father, for the clear preaching of the gospel, uh, that be, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Give us, uh, give us great admiration for those who have come before us, and help us to follow in their footsteps of courage, of faith, of of bold and clear pronunciation of the truths of the great evangel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.